Chapter 20, More Pages, The Making of More Weight, and Other Festival Tales. He just yells out at the top of his lungs, more weight, and then he dies. I'm starting to feel like Frodo or Bilbo, hairy feet and full pantry aside. In those movies, after lots of adventure and CG, they would cut to the hobbits recapping everything in written word, often with a poetic finality and forced sentimentality. The first edition of More Weight was printed and released in the fall of 2014. I originally ended the book around the post-production phase before we even had a festival release. While Emily and I were editing and laying out the pages, Buffalo and Seattle happened, which inspired the big, depressing chapter on distribution and release. I couldn't explain the letdowns of those festivals without explaining the greater context of distribution disappointments. The addition of new events required several refashionings of the ending, and as the events became more depressing, it became increasingly challenging to end on an inspiring note. I'm not sure if that's my job necessarily, but it always felt like the right thing to do. One of the goals of the book, after all, was to encourage young filmmakers. Now that I'm releasing the second edition, I have an opportunity to recap some major highlights of the film's festival and screening life that took place after the book's initial release. There's room for a little more. As Frodo said to Sam. Although all of my features met lackluster ends, they all had moments in the sun. Ten Pounds and Abo had big turnout local premieres and screened at Troma Dance. And Sexually Frank had amazing screenings in New York and Sydney. Two festivals in, having fun up there hadn't had a screening in which we would celebrate the accomplishment with cast, crew, and personal supporters. You can't move on to the next project without at least one of those. That's the kind of experience people are fantasizing about in pre-production, all the way through shooting and amidst the exhausting mechanics of color correction, mixing, and editing. When will it play in Boston, we were often asked. I would have preferred to screen in a local festival, because then I wouldn't have to pay for the venue and run the whole thing myself. But that was clearly not happening. So I looked into costs for Boston theaters. The two that come to mind for any Boston-dwelling movie lover are the Brattle in Harvard Square and the Coolidge Corner Cinema. The Brattle is a well-known repertory theater, with a reputation for highbrow audiences and screenings, but they're not above midnight showings of Troll 2 and the like. Jeff was especially fond of the idea, mentioning that the screening at the Brattle was on his bucket list. The other option, the Coolidge Corner Cinema, is a spot I frequented throughout college for director-held screenings and cool revivals, like seeing Ghostbusters on 35mm. Sexually Frank had screened in Boston, but it was on a Sunday night, and despite my supporters demanding a local screening of the film, the place was pretty much empty. I've since vowed to only hold screenings on Fridays or Saturdays, even if I'm being offered a major discount for screening on a weekday. The Coolidge quickly responded with their astronomical rate of $1,000 for a slot of 12 a.m. to 2 a.m. on Fridays or Saturdays, or $2,000 to do 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. on the same days. Even at those rates, there were no screening times available for months. I'd sooner project against the side of my house and invite everyone over for cake than pay those prices. The Brattle took much longer to respond, to my initial and subsequent emails, as we came to understand they charged the same basic and ridiculous rates. Though well beyond wrapped, the core cast and crew continued to communicate in our internal Facebook group. Johnny Northrup prompted me for answers. Yo, what's up with the Boston area screening? I'm pretty sure we can get a good crowd out for something like that. That is, unless you guys just want to go back to Buffalo. I shared my findings with an implied, sorry, it's too expensive tone. Johnny didn't take that lying down. Maybe this is silly. But what about getting a hold of a projector and screen and just booking O'Brien's or someplace and basically having a giant party? Could even do something like an acoustic set of some of the songs from the movie. If we charged like five bucks a head, we could probably at least cover the cost of the room and sound would just be pumped through the PA. Definitely in the spirit of the movie. Even since 10 pounds, I had a fantasy of screening one of my films after a pre-show of live independent music. Not quite sure why. 
Now I had an insanely talented musician who wrote and performed all music for the film offering to do just that. And why was I hung up on the idea of the movie playing in a theater? This was exactly the kind of variety of experience I needed for my fourth film. Having fun up there had been a first for a lot of things. Why not shake up the exhibition a little? Jeff and I agreed that it should be free, however, as we just wanted our friends to come and celebrate the accomplishment with us. I put out some Facebook feelers for where to pursue, and a few usual suspects kept being suggested. I doubted any of these places even had screens to project onto. I assumed we'd have to bring all the gear to turn a music stage into a theater, but a few places actually had fairly technical setups. Grizzled veteran musicians that they are, Jeff and Johnny offered to do the talking for me. Jeff warned me that the guys and gals who book these places can be snobby, rude, and unreliable, as if I didn't remember the ordeal at radio, and may not even open an email from an address they don't recognize. I charged forward and, to my surprise, did receive some prompt responses from a few venues, although they were all fairly unorganized in identifying the person who could help me best, so I bounced around the email planet for a few weeks. Of those who responded, a venue called the Middle East started to look the most promising. Johnny had played there many times, and it was a nice open space and it had its own bar and bathrooms for guests. I visited the location with Kyle one Friday evening and spoke to a nice young woman who was also very interested in filmmaking. She helped us navigate the management, and we almost had it booked. I filled Jeff in on my progress and reminded him that Johnny intended on performing a solo acoustic set. Jeff and I had our hearts set on a rock show, in which Jeff would get to play, so he said he'd approach Johnny about it sometime. Meanwhile, I was invoiced an extremely reasonable $350 for four and a half hours, 6 to 10 p.m., on Saturday, September 27th. Nearly poetic, as that was one day before the one-year anniversary of the first day of shooting. It would be a cash bar, I'd have an opportunity to sell merchandise, the book and DVDs and Blu-rays, and there would be plenty of time for the Q&A and music. Although it was three months from happening, I wanted to get payment out of the way, so I visited after work one night with Nina and Kyle. I don't remember the last thing in my life that got lost in the mail, but when it comes to hundreds of dollars and beyond, I'm a real I hand you cash money, you hand me a receipt kind of a guy. We weren't able to get there until about 7 p.m. because of our work schedules, and it wasn't clear where you would even submit payment in person. We walked past the dining booths, then past the bar. The entrance to the venue was on the right, immediately before you entered the kitchen, to the point that it felt like an only authorized personnel space, and made me think we'll need movie this way, signs on the day. To the left was a little carpeted staircase that led to what appeared to be offices. I awkwardly followed them and found what looked more like a band practice basement than a space for administration, which made sense given where we were. It was covered in flyers, posters, outdated technology. I'm surprised the scene in the movie didn't take place there. A group of employees barely acknowledged my existence as I tried to find a surface to politely knock on. Jeff had set my expectations for this personality type, and he wasn't wrong. They didn't exactly have their customer service faces on. I was looking for the gentleman who emailed me the invoice. We'll call him Justin, for the sake of the story. Hi, I was in the area and hoping to pay for a date I had booked. I've been emailing with Justin? One guy gawked at me. The others ignored me. Is Justin here? Or if he's not, are you... Is anyone able to accept payment on invoices? I'm Justin, the gawker spoke. He wore a black band t-shirt that wrapped tightly around his shapeless torso. He looked a guy in his 30s who refused the idea of being in his 30s. Again, I'm surprised we didn't cast him as the lead in our film. Oh, great. So, I didn't know you were coming, and it's 7 p.m. Yeah, sorry, I was in the area, I lied, approaching him with the invoice and the cash. I had made a special trip, but I was trying to appeal to what I assumed was a laid-back demeanor. Things went quiet. Then he went shameless on me, looking me in the eyes unmistakably. 
What I'm saying is it's seven. You should have told me you were coming because it's time for me to leave. And now I have to stay late to do this. I don't like confrontation. Who does? But I don't cower in moments like that. I double down. I raised my voice about two dB. Nothing to bring the house down, but enough to balance the power dynamic. I'm sorry to hear that, but I showed up to make sure the Middle East has been paid. I have the cash right here. I'm giving it to you. Like a hipster snail, Justin stood up and wandered over to a Mac Mini model I recognized from 2004. It's going to be at least five minutes, he said tentatively, as if that news might cause me to call the whole thing off. Thank you. And for that time, tight-shirt Justin waited minutes for his Mac Mini to print a receipt on what I think was an inkjet photo printer. I assumed he was fixating on how much he hated me in our silence. So it's a movie? He asked me without looking at me. I assumed that was a judgment more than a question. Yeah, it's a movie. And then there's going to be music? Well, the music will open for the movie, I guess. Silence for a few moments. Why is it free? I'm basically throwing a party. Huh. So a free movie. With music. Right. Sounds cool. We've had, like, movies here before, but I can't remember one that was free to the public like that. That's awesome. Suddenly, Mr. Gen X was exhibiting some positivity. I proceeded to tell him what it was about, and he was genuinely interested. He gave me the receipt within his five-minute estimate, and we left on polite terms, leaving me confused as to whether we were friends or foes. I clearly don't know how to interact with that dejected and cynical yet relaxed demeanor. As far as I knew, and evidenced by the preceding chapters, the Middle East screening would be the having fun up their finale. In the meanwhile, Aaron and I picked up How Are We as a regular weekly podcast throughout the summer. Emily, this book's editor, started her own podcast on the Red Cow Network, and she and I completed multiple formats of the book audio, hardcover, paperback, ebook, etc. John, Nina, and I decided to take on a feature length documentary as our next project about the astronomical expense of weddings. Nina and I mused about doing that for years because we weren't aware of another documentary like it, and it's generally unspoken about nuisance in people's lives. I thought it would be especially fun to co-direct with Nina. She's been making films alongside me for over a decade, and I was excited to bring her voice in more, especially for something that didn't require narrative screenwriting or direction. My friend, former classmate, and brief star of having fun up there, plays one of the idea people. E.J. Massa had been busy trying to accumulate his own media production under the name Excitement Bicycle, being the sole creator of short cartoons and hilarious camera reviews. By his request, I had been lending my voice to some of the cartoons, which was really fun for me. I would take five minutes to record his dialogue, and then about two weeks later, a great little cartoon featuring me would exist. When he heard about the documentary, he offered to shoot interviews or events whenever he was available, and I took him up on it. Kyle and EJ would man the camera, Nina and I would direct, John would be on audio, and when available, Hannah would show up to goof off. The shoots were easy, short, and often punctuated by a group meal. It was a change of pace from the harsh schedule of a narrative film. With the multiple podcast projects and new friends contributing new content, the Red Cow family was developing into a new creative paradigm. When I submitted having fun up there to festivals in February and in March, it was based on best of lists found on the internet. Within reason, I'm not going to bother submitting the Sundance, for instance, but South by Southwest is always worth a shot. Festivals I had submitted to in the past and recommendations and leads. Maria Natapov had pointed us in the direction of Buffalo, and we all know how that turned out. She had also recommended the Massachusetts Independent Film Festival, mentioning how she had worked as a press person there the previous year, and that it was a great festival. 
never one to deny help and knowing almost nothing about the festival, I asked if she could put in a word for our movie, but she denied it vehemently, saying their programmers were particular about accepting films on their own merits. And here I thought film festivals were nothing but nepotism. I submitted, because why not, and then forgot all about it, like the many other festivals from which we were rejected. On July 21st, 2014, I received an acceptance email from MIF. It wasn't as explicit as, hey, you're in, but instead just listed the films in the schedule and said something like, congrats to all the filmmakers. But we were there, playing after a three-minute film called Dark Roast on Friday, August 8th at 7.40pm. At the Brattle. Meaning, if no one showed up, which they would, this was in our backyard, Jeff would be able to cross screening at the Brattle off his bucket list and not have to pay $2,000 to do it. That was enough reason to celebrate. The only downside we could see, really, was that it might split the audience or undercut the local screening we planned at the Middle East in September. Best case, we could get a good crowd at the Brattle in August, and then anyone who missed it could attend the Middle East the following month. Worst case, Johnny and I have to play to another empty audience, and I've squandered 350 bucks. It was a fine problem to have. Two days before the Brattle screening, I received an email announcing that we were nominated for three categories. Best writing to Jeff and me, which I was embarrassed about since I had specifically not written the script. Best acting to John Ryan, and best New England film to all of us. Everyone was proud of one another and started promoting the screening hard on Facebook, and we saw a lot of support and intent to come. Since I didn't know how likely or not likely it was that it would sell out, or whether or not tickets would be available at the box office, I encouraged everyone to purchase tickets online. I was offered free admittance to the screening, so I hadn't gone through the purchasing process until my mom asked for help. It was then that I saw how ridiculous it was. You had to buy a ticket for a block at the film festival, not for a specific movie. How do you know what block the film you want is? You have to go to the website and figure it out. I can barely get people to attend my events for free. As if the admission charge wasn't enough of a deterrent, this Da Vinci code of a purchasing process wasn't going to help. Small obstacles, I found as both a filmmaker and an IT guy, are just the kinds of things that discourage usability and cause systems to fail. Alas, people were powering through it, and a week before the screening, we knew it would be our biggest audience so far, which wasn't saying much. Any casual observer of my work knows that John Ryan has been my actor for some time. He has top billing in three of my four features, and believe me, if I had known him in the £10 days, he would have been Miguel. And yet, he has never attended a screening of any of our films. Not the UMass Dartmouth premiere of Abo, not the Boston, Sydney, or New York screenings of Sexually Frank, and not the laughable wastes of time in Buffalo and Seattle. With his work schedule and life in San Francisco, it was never likely that he would take a one- to three-day vacation just to watch the film screen someplace in the country, so the only way that would happen is through some chance serendipity. And indeed, John Ryan already had plans to visit Boston in early August, and he was flying back out the day after the screening. He would absolutely have the opportunity to attend, at a festival he was nominated at, no less. The day of the screening had come. I had to go to work, but it was almost like a snow day or something. Cue the music. My office was participating in a departmental fair, so work was hardly expected, and we were all chatting about when to head to the venue, whether or not we'd pick up food first, who's coming, etc., I had asked DJ a few nights prior to film the event, and, super nice guy that he is, he enthusiastically agreed. When everyone got off work at 5, the plan was to head to Charlie's Kitchen in Harvard Square, a block away from the Brattle. EJ, Kyle, Will Rogan, our co-worker Laurie, and I started a plate of nachos. We were soon joined by Jeff and his girlfriend Maya. Then Hannah arrived with her mom, aunt, and cousins, so we had to combine tables. 
then Jeff's brother Scott and his girlfriend, then Nina, then Johnny, and then one of Jeff's friends I had never even met. Soon after, Aaron and Mike squeezed in and began ordering a few courses of food. The turnout at this table alone far outweighed any screening we had hitherto. Surrounded by friends and supporters, I pulled out the first edition paperback of More Weight and delighted in questions like, When did you have time to write a book? At about 30 minutes from showtime, everyone frantically tried to pay for whatever it was they ordered. I handed EJ my camera bag with the Panasonic GH4, a 4K DSLR I bought because of one of his reviews. Everything that went into that purchase, from the three lenses to the SD cards to the camera bag itself, were dictated by EJ's expertise. Kyle also threw his trusty 5D bag over his shoulder like a proton pack, and after just about everyone went for a bathroom run, which started to cause me anxiety as time ran low, the caravan marched toward the brattle. The entrance and box office for the brattle is below street level, down a small flight of stairs. Even from a block away, I could see a good deal of mulling in that alcove, and held hope it was for our movie. Indeed, it was, complete with my and Jeff's parents, a classmate from my old public school who had wanted to be a filmmaker himself at one time, Michael Lebrecht Yesen, Molly Coombs, John Hunt, who had not been to a having fun up there screening yet, and looked annoyed and exasperated from the Friday rush hour commute, and John Ryan with his girlfriend. Sometimes friends, significant others attend shoots or screenings out of obligation and stand apart from the family experience, but not John Ryan's lady. She talked to us like she knew us for years and seemed genuinely ecstatic that someone she loved was not only involved in, but central to something creative and dynamic like this. The festival had one of those nifty backdrops wallpapered with its logo, and with all the family pride present, we took every configuration of photo we could in the time allotted. Just the actors, just the crew, this couple, that couple, both those couples, everyone, no one, everyone got a photo opportunity to be proud of themselves and others. The crowd filed into the theater, and many were able to buy tickets at the door because we had not sold out. Far from it, actually. The turnout was probably between 80 and 100, and the brattle seats 235, making the room look a tad sparse. But to worry about that was ridiculous. So far, it was a wonderful celebration, and the movie hadn't even started. John Ryan, his lady, Aaron, Mike, Nina, John Hunt, and I crowded into the very back and to the right. We were all fairly giddy and at risk of lampooning our own film. Kyle, Hannah, and family, Molly, and Mike filled the center rows. Jeff and his family were a bit to the left, and other supporters filled the rest of the seats. From out of the shadows of the venue, Maria ran up to me, gave me a quick hug, and ran off to do festival work. She was dressed formally in a yellow jacket, fulfilling her duties as festival interviewer, an art house April O'Neil, if you will. After a brief intro, the lights dropped and dark roasts started playing. It was only three minutes, so I can sum it up quickly. After several close-up and establishing shots of objects in a coffee shop, which looked eerily like Flatlack, the rest of the movie is shot-reverse-shot close-ups of a guy and a girl. Over the three minutes, we learn that the girl is actually the Grim Reaper attempting to go on a date, and when she discovers that this guy is boring, like all guys, she touches him, kills him, and leaves. To my relief, the filmmakers did their Q&A right after Dark Roast. Sometimes when movies screen back-to-back, the festival will group the Q&A, which is awkward for everyone, especially if you're grouping a feature with a short. A feature is going to elicit more questions from the audience because of its larger scope, but then the audience feels bad for the short and tries to balance that, and everyone leaves disappointed. I remember that happening at the Cinekink screening of Sexually Frank. We were opened by a short called Laser Blasters. It was 1 minute and 43 seconds, began with a Star Wars-style crawl describing sex acts in a sci-fi context. When it ends, we get a wide shot of a truck driving toward us, a hooded figure then teleports into frame and shoots a laser from his crotch at the truck, 
There's a big cheesy CG explosion followed by end credits. So the joke was mostly that this short was claiming to be a movie in the first place. An hour and a half later, after Sexually Frank screened, the director stood in front of the crowd with us, available to answer questions about his film. Annoying. Our movie drew most of that night's crowd, so Dark Roast got a great audience, but perhaps a more cynical one than they deserved, since few were there to see them. I asked what they shot it on, and as I recall, one of Jeff's friends challenged them about some detail of the film. I was whispering an aside to Aaron when I heard the crowd playfully go, ooh, and glance over to me. I had no idea what was said. John Ryan filled me in that the filmmaker was praising Dark Roast on its decision to be short and to the point, unlike this film you're about to see. I guess he thinks feature films should be even shorter than an hour. The lights dropped again, and the opening line to Robots Do Not Rock played across the cinema. Life was good. The projection was fairly dim and the color slightly off, which Will Rogan and I lamented about later, but nothing to stop the screening over. Our back-of-the-house giddy energy maintained throughout the showing. For one, I became aware in the first minutes that John Ryan brought much more than a girlfriend. He had a squawking entourage filling out the right side of the house, howling with laughter and excitement at everything his character did and said. I don't know if they were friends, former classmates, distant family, or what, but they loved him, and he was visibly embarrassed by it. Moreover, Aaron isn't one to sit through a ruckus, so he started loudly parroting every outburst, to all of our amusement. John Ryan had only recently become a listener of How Wowie, the comedy of which is largely inspired by Aaron. Between his mocking of J.R.'s company and imitations of his Uncle Steve when on screen, who you'll remember played a small role in the film, J.R. was being treated to a live Hawawi at the Brattle Theater. Fortunately, the crowd was lively and interactive and excited throughout, so the expectation of stark silence wasn't there. I've never been particularly respectful at my own screenings. At the same Cinekink screening of Sexually Frank I referenced earlier, I tweeted throughout the show, as low-key as I could, and was almost kicked out by the festival. It took them a while to realize the obnoxious tweeter was the director of the movie currently playing. Festival juror Dean Treadway approached the mic and invited us up for about 10 minutes to answer questions. Jeff and I told a few of the location horror stories and talked about our dynamic. The discussion was conducted very well by Dean, who, based on his line of questioning, was a great lover of film and a gracious host. He let the audience know that having fun up there was one of his favorite submissions, complimenting it for having a great sense of time and place, which was encouraging to hear. Our supporters and friends dawdled outside the venue once we filed out. Jeff's dad, I heard, told him, I didn't know you knew all those words. Jeff later told me this was a significant moment for him and his family, as he's been pursuing the arts his entire life and has few times been recognized publicly at a venue like the Brattle. My mom and dad later told me how great the entire evening was for them, expressing that they re-liked the movie upon repeat viewings. My dad, however, was getting the added kick of being at Harvard Square, a place he was very familiar with but hadn't frequented in years. One street performer in particular captured his imagination. The act was a guy completely covered in drapes and cloths as a makeshift puppet theater, wherein he sat in a wheelchair and operated a large face with his feet and another smaller puppet with his hands. The large face was named Nostril Domus, who resembled some kind of totem, and the one above was Uncle Scam, who looked vaguely like Uncle Sam. There's a karaoke setup, complete with a mic for passersby and for himself, in which he mumbles recognizable ditties like zippity doo There are also signs that surround the exhibit, including the name of the show, 
Hep Cat's Meow with Uncle Scam and Nostradamus, and one advertising its website, UncleScam.org. The website, by the way, looks like it was built in 1942 with big colorful letters that say, Welcome Home, and this verbiage. We need more freedom of speech, not less. If people are complaining about the content, period, it shows they're thinking about what they heard. This show is a success, three spaces, if I can get folks to think. It's pretty obvious that the mind behind Uncle Scam and Nostradamus is a burnout from the 70s, trying to communicate something ambiguously political through his art. But my father couldn't have been more amused. He approached Hannah, Nina, and several others, and brought them in circuits to gaze upon the drapery. Look at that, huh? That is out there. What do you think his mother thinks about that? What? My son screened his movie at the Brattle Cinema. What does yours do? Oh, he does a show across from the GMC. Wow. Huh? What does the sign say? Huh? Uncle Scam? Look at him. He's in a wheelchair. Uncle Scam is in a wheelchair. How early in the morning do you think he gets there to set up? Huh? Early. I'm going to tell you something. That is crazy. I was, of course, busy during all of this, but got to hear about it later. My dad and I later looked him up on YouTube and really got to share how hilarious it was. Funny in the first place, funnier still by my dad's befuddlement. It was a fun reminder for me that, though Uncle Scam and I may get different CAT scan results, our goals are probably not so different, relatively speaking. As Penn and Teller say, there's one show business, and Bach, Bob Dylan, Ron Jeremy, and the guy at the mall in the Santa suit are all in it. As festival press, Maria had the task of video interviewing us for their website. The first round was me, Jeff, and Kyle, repeating the same old stories and anecdotes, followed by a cast interview of John Ryan, Hannah, and Will Rogan, which I was far more interested in hearing. Maria, still conscious of separating her role in the film from her role at the festival, barely acknowledged her involvement as the lead female in the movie, which was especially sad in the cast interview. John Ryan saw this clearly and insisted on reverse interviewing her with his phone, which was way cute. A sizable group of us went across the street to Tasty Burger to enjoy the high we were on from a great screening. We left around midnight, and I ran into Johnny as I was exiting. I asked him about the possibility of making the next screening a rock show and not an acoustic set. He politely mentioned that there just wouldn't be time to get together a band and practice. He promised me that the acoustic set would be fun, he's done this before, and I should trust him. I left it alone after that. Nina and I rode the tea back to her car, accompanied by Will Rogan, who thought now would be a good time to talk about all the problems he saw with the film. His critiques were all valid, and he was very nice about them, using language like, you're going to get better and better. But when I'm on a high like that and finally feeling victorious after so many obstacles, I wanted to feel good about myself and my art, at least until I went to bed. He didn't let me get away with it. 